Well, this evening we consider God's Word as it is summarized for us in Lord's Day 40 of our Heidelberg Catechism. If you're not familiar with that, if we have guests that are not from uh, one of our churches, the Heidelberg Catechism is a device that we use to teach our children and one another the essential truths of the faith. In Lord's Day 40, we're in the midst of working through the Ten Commandments, and we're at the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Kill. Before we look at what that says, we're going to look at one of the many passages that are summarized there, and that is Titus 3. Now, Titus 3 we used when we looked at Lord's Day 27 concerning baptism. We're looking at it again as one of a, a few passages that we'll look at this evening, because this passage not only reminds us what baptism teaches about our salvation, but it also shows us how we are to be grateful for that which baptism reveals to us. So the first eight verses of Titus 3 remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Amen. Lord's Day 40 asks us three questions. The first is, what is God's will for us in the Sixth Commandment? The answer is that I am not to belittle, insult, hate, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why the government is armed with the sword. Second question is, does this commandment refer only to killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? Well, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to him. To protect him from harm as much as we can. And to do good, even to our enemies. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ. When someone raises the topic of murder, who comes to mind? Perhaps one of those who has perpetrated a school shooting over the past few years. Such senseless acts of violence and mayhem. Or perhaps you think in bigger, more historic terms of men like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot. 
If the pro-life movement is on your mind, you might think of Planned Parenthood or even in some sense our Supreme Court. Or from a more biblical angle, maybe you'll think of Cain and his murderous descendant Lamech. It's interesting, when we think of infamous murderers, who comes to mind? And also, who doesn't? Should we not first think of Adam when we think of murderers? After all, Adam was the one charged with preserving our race under the mercy and the the love of God. And not only did Adam fail to protect Eve, his wife, from the sin that would bring death upon her, but he joined Eve in her sin, dragging not just himself, but all of his descendants into that line of death. Is that not murder? Is that not, in fact, mass murder of the grossest kind? And why is it? Why is it that we, not, that we don't think of Adam, but we also don't think of ourselves? Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And what did we hear about ourselves in Titus 3, verse 3? We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. At one time, we ourselves, hating one another. But anyone who hates is the murderer. Why is it then that we decry those others who hate and who murder, but we don't look in the mirror? The simple biblical fact is that we all were born murderers. Our infant children are murderers because they inherited the fallen nature of their father, Adam. Our gentlest, most reserved young ladies are murderers because... It's not in the dainty little hands that murder lies, but in the corrupt heart. When someone raises the topic of murder, the first murderer who should come to mind is the one you see in the mirror, or used to see in the mirror. Because as Paul says, that's what we were. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy... He saved us. We were murderers. That's the nature with which we were born. But through faith in Christ, He saved us. And we are murderers no more. In concept, at least, we have been delivered from our murderous guilt and from our murderous inclinations because we have died with Christ and now we live with Him in newness of life. And that new life that God has given us It's a life that is meant to be devoted not to the taking of life, but to the preserving of God's gift of life. That's what Lord's Day 40 shows us. That God's grateful people strive to preserve the life God has given. And that's our theme this evening. God's grateful people strive to preserve the life that God has given. And that means, first of all, a life devoted to restraining the murderer's Hand. That's our first point, restraining the murderer's hand. Now, if I can speak to the children for a minute, when I say restrain, that's the word stop. We, we stop something when we restrain it. But when I say we restrain the murderer's hand, I'm not talking about just reaching out to someone who's about to commit murder and, and grabbing hold of them. I'm talking about stopping certain actions, certain activities that we ourselves are tempted to do. 
God wants us to restrain ourselves. He wants us to stop ourselves from acting sinfully with regard to the sixth, the sixth commandment. That obviously means that, that we're not to murder. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. God hates murder, and he has from the beginning. After all, God created life for man as one of his chief gifts. To to destroy life without cause is a terrible sin against God who gave it. Because it scorns not just the gift God has given, but the one who designed it to be good for us. So when Cain murdered his brother Abel, God sent Cain into exile. And when God blessed Noah after the flood, the Lord warned, this is in Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So God would have us to strongly reject the unjust taking of a person's life. However, the sin of murder is broader than simply shedding the blood unto death of another person. We can murder a person with our words by belittling, insulting, mocking them, by showing them scorn. We can murder a person with our hateful looks and expressions. We can murder them by means of our attitudes, our inclinations. We can murder them by what we decline to do. Jesus said that we are subject to hell itself for calling a man a fool in our anger. And likewise, the Bible warns that we must not take or harm a life in seeking revenge. Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as if that doesn't widen the scope quite enough, our catechism says we must not be party to this in others, meaning we're not to help others when they commit sins against this commandment. So the sixth commandment covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? A lot of familiar ground. I suspect that most of us in the church would never seriously entertain the thought of killing someone intentionally. But what about hating them? What about despising someone? What about uttering insults and slander? Those... Those sins are entirely more accessible to us, aren't they? How many of our teenagers have heard and maybe nodded along to the words, Oh, I just hate her. Or, He is such a jerk. And isn't that a hateful sentiment that encompasses the sin of murder? Or how many of us have have repeated insults about politicians that we dislike, or at the very least offered an approving laugh at the jokes and insults that slander the politicians, the elected officials with whom we disagree. Not long ago, I watched some children, young children, seven or eight years old, carrying out a pretended sword fight. I think it was actually a lightsaber battle. And... uh, and they were having a great time and they were laughing. And, and then all of a sudden, what was intended to be a near miss became an accidental hit. And the sword fight went from a pretend battle with lots of giggles to something very real. With the toys becoming actual weapons. And then I heard the words, I'm going to kill you. Murder 
is in our heart from the very beginning. And it doesn't just lodge in the actual act of killing. And we're all tempted. Perhaps one of the most tempting aspects of it for for most of us is revenge. Most of us understand that revenge is wrong. I certainly do. But, you know, a while back I, I watched a movie preview. It was one of those things that when you're watching a video online, they, they show the preview. And, and it was a preview of a movie. And it was about a woman who was attacked in the city by a gang. And uh, the police didn't make it too high of a priority. and They didn't find who it was that did it. So this woman... The premise of the story was that she trained and she became quite sufficient to not just defend herself, but to do what needed to be done. And then she made it her business to hunt down this gang and each of its members and to deal justice out on her own. And my first thought was, wow, that'll be a good movie. And then I thought, that's not our calling. Our calling is not to be judge, jury, and executioner. Our calling is not to take vengeance. That's God's job. Sometimes He does it through the authorities He has established over us. Sometimes He makes us wait until the day of judgment. But always, it is His job, not ours, to take that vengeance. And you know what? We're so tempted to it. We we get offended and pretty soon we allow our minds to wander, our minds to focus on that person and that offense and the offense gets so large and our own part in the, in the disagreement becomes so small. And pretty soon we're thinking about the things we could have said or should have said or maybe one day we will say and we're thinking about the ways that, that justice could be done to them and how sweet it would be to watch that justice done, to watch them get what's coming to them. And pretty soon, brothers and sisters, pretty soon our hearts are filled with bitterness toward them. And that is a violation of this command. Because we're taking that life which God made and we're tearing it down and we're throwing it away. We are to put away, to restrain our hands from All acts of murder. That includes the destruction of a person's actual life, but also the words that are meant to make them feel worthless. And the desires, the plotting, the planning, the thinking, the joking, that show that we take their lives without much seriousness. And also, for our young people especially, it involves the harming or the Potential harming of oneself. God wants us to cherish the gift of life that He has given. Not absolutely. We should be willing to give of our lives for those around us. We should be willing to defend them with our own lives. That's a good thing. But but those who belong to our fallen world, they glorify a pointless embrace of danger, don't they? The internet... Cable TV, movies, they endlessly glorify the pointless pursuit of thrills. Bungee jumping, extreme stunts, super dares, base jumping, where folks jump off of tall structures and bridges and, and endanger themselves for the sake of a momentary thrill. They make it look cool. They make it look fun. Most of all, they make it look like it gives your life true purpose. Like you're not really living unless you're coming right up alongside of death. But what that actually is, folks... 
What that actually is, is taking that immeasurably great gift of life that God has entrusted to us and saying, it's really not worth much. It's really just the admission price to a momentary thrill. And that's something we can understand for someone who doesn't have the joy of the Lord's salvation, for someone who doesn't have an eternity of living with God to which they look forward and for which they are preparing. But we are are different. We're made for eternity and we know it. God made us in His image and He redeemed us from the ruin of His sin. And He's called us to use this life for three purposes. Ultimately to glorify Him. To prepare ourselves for eternity and to serve others in a way that glorifies, that reveals God. And none of that involves squandering the life that God has given us. We know better, but, but still we're tempted, right? We might not go base jumping or cliff diving, but, but we take pointless risks at work without using the safety gear that's available. We ride motorcycles at high speed without a helmet. We do foolish things, neglect easy precautions that break the sixth commandment because we take lightly the life God has given. And we must not. We must restrain the murderer's hand. And not just his hand. Sin doesn't just suddenly appear in the actions we commit or the words that we speak. We've touched on this, but we need to look at it. Sin begins in the heart. It begins with the desires that we nurture. It begins with the thoughts that we think. And God cares deeply about that as well as what we do. And so in the sixth commandment, He calls us not only to restrain the murderer's hand, but to renounce the murderer's heart, which is our second point. The second part of this lesson of Lord's Day 40 It basically says God hates murderous thoughts and desires. And that's a direct reflection of Scripture. Titus 3, which was our main Scripture reading, says we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul reminds us that we are saved from all that. We're saved from, notice, those are desires. Those are attitudes that are cultivated within, that drive the actual actions. And we were saved from that ugliness of living for those ungodly passions. The lusts and the pleasures, the malice and the envy, the hating and being hateful. Colossians 3 verse 8 says similarly, now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. You see, these we're to put off because we're to put off the old nature that reflects Adam as we daily take up the new nature made after the image of Christ. That's why God has always instructed His people to reject not only murder, as we see in Genesis 9, but also hatred and vengeance and bearing a grudge, as we learn from Leviticus 19. God wants us to reject these sinful, murderous emotions of the heart because it's from the heart that the deed arises. We need to cut off sin at its root. When you, when you garden, you don't just take the weed whacker into the garden and cut the weeds off. No, if you want them to stay gone, you've got to take a hoe and get the roots up out of the ground. Or they'll just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And so it is with our sin. We can't just stop the hand. We have to transform the heart. And we know that God's the one doing that, but He calls us to be at work in that. So what's that look like with regard to murder? Well, if you're going to reject murder, if you're going to 
to rid your life of it, then you need to start with rejecting its root, which is hatred. And what's the seed of hatred? If the, if the root is hatred, what's the seed from which it grows? Isn't that anger? That means it matters how you respond to offense, doesn't it? It matters whether you seek reconciliation immediately with the people who harm you, with the people who offend you, or whether you decide you're going to wait and let them suffer a little bit. It matters whether you freely forgive an offense when they apologize or whether you hold on to it a little while and you allow that bitterness to grow. Because if you allow that unrighteous anger to fill your heart, if you allow it to remain there, then that anger will sprout and it will put down roots. And those roots of anger will develop into hatred. And hatred cannot long last without giving, root, giving fruit of murderous words and thoughts and deeds. Now, of course, there is such a thing as righteous anger, isn't there? Jesus was righteously angry when he entered the temple and he found the court of the Gentiles where where people from beyond Israel should have been learning about the, the Word of God, he found it turned into a marketplace. He was righteously angry about that. He was righteously angry with the Pharisees who were leading people astray from the truth of God's Word. And we can be righteously angered when we see or hear God or the church slandered, when we learn of injustice, when we witness persecution. Those things should anger us. And our anger then is a reflection of God's anger. But we need to be careful there. Sin, injustice, blasphemy, they should anger us. But that anger, it should cause us to rise up and act, right? We need to speak in defense of God. We need to show forth the truth. We need to seek out that which is good and right in the eyes of God. But what we must not do is allow that to let righteous anger to lead us into hatred. Whether it's righteous or not, any anger long cherished becomes hatred, becomes murder. It fills you with bitterness that chokes off all of the good fruit of the Holy Spirit. We must not allow us, ourselves to cherish anger. We must not allow ourselves to get vindictive. Again, remember Romans 12, verse 19. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, God is the judge, and we must renounce the temptation to try to sit in his chair. He's the judge. He's the one who takes care of it. And if he doesn't exercise that judgment here and now, he will on the day of judgment. The justice will be done. God will see to it. That's not our job. Our job is to patiently wait to trust in Him and to show forth His love, His mercy, His care instead of vindictiveness, hatred, anger, bitterness. In all of these ways, then, we're to renounce the heart of a murderer in the thoughts we think, the desires we cherish, the emotions we allow to persist because Christ freed us from that murderous desire. And therefore, we're called to reject all that would lead us to maintain that life-destroying desire to murder. But on the other hand, he calls us to embrace precisely the opposite. In the final answer of Lord's Day 40, we're told by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, 
God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that's true, but why? Why are we to love our neighbor as ourselves? Why would God command that? Listen to 1 John chapter 4. We heard this this morning in our assurance of pardon. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God showed His love for us with the most selfless act that mankind has ever known. He sent His Son to endure the wrath of God that we deserved. Having been saved by that tremendous an act of love, We're called to to demonstrate that self-sacrificing love to others. God wants us to imitate Him when we show love. He says later in that chapter, By this we know that we are of the... uh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. (laughs) Um, We love Him because He first loved us. And then He says, "If, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If we are truly reformed from the ways of a murderer, our reform must begin in truly loving God. And if we truly love God, then we will begin to truly love our neighbor. So what's that look like? Well, there are numerous passages in Scripture that show us that. Take, for instance, the first part of that reading from Titus 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey. Just as Jesus subjected himself to Pilate and to the Pharisees and the chief priests and rulers, so we are called to show obedience and submission to those over us. This is an act of love for our neighbor, an act of selflessness toward those who've been established to protect us. That's why today we're worshiping in person with, what, uh, eight people, while the rest of the congregation is at home. The government has ordered us to not gather together so as to protect us from disease. And out of love for our neighbor, we obey that command. He says, then be ready for every good work. Just as Jesus was always ready to heal, to restore, to deliver those who sought help from Him, even when they sought Him on the Sabbath, even when when He knew that it was a trap to get Him in trouble. Jesus was always ready to do good out of love for his neighbor. And so must we. He says, speak evil of no one. We are to be a people that speaks the truth in love. Now, you know, sometimes people use that as an excuse to say mean things. Well, I'm just speaking the truth, right? I'm just telling you what's really on my mind, what's really on my heart. But if we're really speaking the truth in love... Then as Ephesians 4 says, we're trying not to tear down, but to build up. Speaking words of edification, words that will draw them more into the Lord, more to the knowledge of Him who loves them. Therefore, he says, be peaceable, be gentle. Like our Savior, we are to seek peace, even with those who seek our destruction. We're to show them honor and gentleness, not opening our mouths against them, even though we're led to the slaughter. Not picking fights, even though we know them to be evil. Remember, Jesus sought peace even with those who were crucifying Him. And then He says, showing humility to all men. Murder 
is inherently the act of pride, isn't it? It says, you've offended me, so therefore you must be ended. It says, you and I disagree, and therefore to end the disagreement, I'm going to get rid of you. Right? It's inherently proud, but God calls us to be humble. Jesus was so humble that though He deserved righteously to sit on the throne of heaven, He made Himself of no account. Lowly, He took up our nature, lived among men who refused to recognize Him as God, though He did the works of God, and even died on the cross, a curse Bearing our curse. If He showed such humility for us, should we not for the good of our neighbor show humility likewise? Or again, look at the counsel of Romans chapter 12. In that chapter, we're urged to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of gratitude to God. And the chief part of that is showing love both to God and to our neighbor. Well, what's that involved? Verse 10 of Romans 12 says... Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. In other words, I should treat others as being more important than me. I should make myself their servant, putting them over me. Verse 13, he says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That which I own, I should regard as a tool entrusted to me by God that I might do good to others. In other words, I shouldn't treasure it up as all my own and be... be, uh, selfish with it, but I should be free with what God has given so freely to me. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We're called to sympathize with those who are going through difficult times. To join them in raising up prayer to God for help. To join them too in grieving, in weeping. We're to share their burden just as Jesus shared our burden. And so it continues, this this counsel to love others as God has loved us. In fact, Ephesians 4 verse 28 says, The redeemed thief should no longer steal, but should work so he can share with those in need. In like manner, the Bible shows us that the redeemed murderer should not only no longer kill, but should live in a way that preserves and multiplies life around him. Our catechism says we should protect our neighbor from harm as much as we can. Now, the the easiest way we can do that is not endangering our neighbor with what we do. But our Lord calls us to provide for them protection even from the dangers we inadvertently create. It was interesting how many of the Old Testament case laws focus on this. For instance, Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 instructs people to build a short wall around the outside of their roof. Now, why would you do that? Well, they often spent time on their roofs, especially in the cool of the evening, to cool down. That was a living space. But, of course, you could fall off a roof if you weren't careful about where you stepped. And so that short wall would prevent you from taking a step that could be dangerous or even fatal. The principle there is that we're to protect people from harm while they're at our house. We don't, most of us, have roofs that we spend time on, but we do put railings on our staircases. And we're called to fix our cracked or uneven sidewalks that could allow folks to trip and and to remove snow and ice from places where it could cause people to slide. Exodus 21 talks about the responsibility of a man for his ox if it gores someone. 
If it's never gored anyone in the past, there's no guilt. But if he knows that ox is prone to doing that, and he hasn't kept it confined, well then he's guilty of manslaughter for allowing that ox out where it's going to harm. Now we don't, most of us, keep oxen. But we do have cars and trucks and toys that can be dangerous. We do keep dogs and livestock. And if you know that your dog can bite, for the love of your neighbor, shouldn't you keep it tied up? If you know that your motorcycle could be dangerous, before you take your friend for a ride, shouldn't you give them a helmet? In other words, God calls us to provide protection for our neighbor from the harm that we know could befall them. And when the opportunity arises, He calls us to actively protect our neighbor. Exodus 22 talks about how when a thief breaks in in the middle of the night, there's no blood guilt if he's killed. Why? Because the owner of that house is called to protect the people who are in it. And so if a thief breaks in at the, in the night, he's entirely justified in taking that thief's, that, the life of that thief, not because he hates the thief, but because he loves the people in the house and he's protecting them. That has implications, doesn't it? Fathers, husbands, you're called to, to be able to protect your family. Elders, deacons, you're called to protect the church from evildoers. Kids, you're called to protect smaller children on the playground from the bullies that would harm them. And doesn't this also speak to our requirement as a society to protect those who are most vulnerable among us from harm? Think of the unborn. I I know I mention that one a lot, but thousands of children are killed every day under the protection of law, and how can we allow that? How? How? As Christians who are called to preserve life and who have received eternal life from our Lord, how can we not fight tirelessly to end this legalized slaughter of the most vulnerable members of our society? God wants us to preserve the lives which our old nature would have rejoiced to destroy. In fact, that should extend even to our enemies. Matthew 5, Jesus says... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Lord wants us, born in the image of Adam the murderer, to now bear His life-giving image. He wants us to seek the good of those who hate us as He sought our good while we were still His enemies and wanted His destruction. That's a complete reversal from what we once were. It reflects our faith that God has given us life and that God is the faithful judge. In other words, that God has transformed us and also that all of the offense, all of the things that cause us anger, He'll take care of that. We don't have to. Our call is not to judge, is not to get revenge is not to treasure up hatred. Our calling is simply to love as we've been loved. To show love to others and to trust that God, He'll deal with those people that have offended us. He'll deal with those who have harmed us. Perhaps He will deal with them on the last great day by bringing them before all men and showing what evil they've committed. Or perhaps He'll treat them as He treated you. A murderer whom the life-giving Savior restored through faith. Freed from sin and gave new life. 
But whatever outcome God chooses to give, our calling is to love our neighbor with faith in God's wise goodness. Brothers and sisters, it is not always easy to love those around us. But when we remember who we are, how we were born with the hearts of a murderer, suddenly their sins become much more forgivable. They become much more lovable. So let us remember who we were and also who God through Christ has saved us to become. And may He use us who once sought to destroy life in order to preserve their lives and even the souls of those around us by pointing them to Christ our Redeemer. To God alone be all the glory.